<clears throat> Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We want to thank our witnesses for being here and certainly all of our committee members. Um, I think in, in lieu of reading my normal opening statement, I just want to make a, a general statement, and that is that uh, yesterday we had a classified briefing. Um, what we hear in classified briefings about the direction and the signals and all of the things that are occurring in Afghanistan directly contradict uh, some of the rosy public statements that are made about what is happening within the country. I think it's actually alarming to go to a classified session and then to hear reports uh, about those discussions in the Armed Services Committee itself. Um, so with that backdrop, I, I just want to say to each of you, all of us obviously uh, want our nation to be successful uh, in its efforts in Afghanistan. I know there's been a debate about the numbers of troops on the ground. Uh, there's been some arbitrary numbers that have been thrown out. Uh, I know today we have 9,800 troops there. And yet, from what I can tell, we're continuing to, to lose uh, territory, lose momentum. Uh, the status in uh, Afghanistan is today we're moving in a very negative direction on the ground. So um, obviously that's concerning. We know that uh, uh, the president, uh, Ghani, uh, we know he has a vast amount of experience. Um, know he's somewhat of a technocrat, knows there are issues uh, that need to be dealt with appropriately within the country. But when you look at all of these security issues that are being dealt with, um, certainly it takes away from his ability to implement those. Um, so we're concerned about security. I think we're concerned about uh, uh, any type of reconciliation that's taking place. We understand the concerns that exist relative to Pakistan. And, uh, and let's face it, them to a degree hedging their bets. Uh, but from the outside, um, as you watch what's happening there, the Taliban is gaining ground. Um, and, uh, and, and that is just a fact. So, so I hope this hearing today, which will be a, uh, obviously the first public hearing we've had in some time on this topic, will help us be illuminated. We thank both of you very, very much for your service and for being here. Um, and we thank you for your willingness to help us with understandings as to, to what is actually happening there on the ground. And with that, I'll turn to Senator Cardin. Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for calling this hearing, and I want to thank our witnesses for, for being here. Uh, I, I just, um, I'm going to follow the example of the chairman and just lay out some basic concerns, I think, that came out uh, as a result, not just of yesterday's briefing, but as we've seen of late, and that is that uh, how are we doing on the security front in Afghanistan? It seems like we're losing ground. What happened in Kudans obviously was a major concern. Uh, it uh, showed uh, real uh, shortcomings in the Afghan national defense and security forces to provide security to a region. Um, what have we learned uh, from that, and how are we going forward? Secondly, the reconciliation process, uh, whether there, there can be a stable government in Afghanistan representing all the interests of the country, and the role that Pakistan is playing in that regard. Are they a, are they a sincere partner in, in peace, or are they just trying to protect their interest um, in, uh, in, in its relationship in, in that region. 
Uh, third, um, the development progress in Afghanistan since 2001, uh, the, the resources that we put into, this, uh, into uh, Afghanistan, uh, there's certainly been a, a question. Their economy is not performing anywhere near uh, at a level that would be acceptable for sustainability and progress. And then today, or yesterday in the New York Times, an article that raises a question as to whether the Taliban is a key to U.S. aid projects, which I would like to get some answers on as to what is the short-term, long-term gains and or whether our investments of U.S. taxpayer dollars are really uh, being beneficial in Afghans' future. And then lastly, uh, the anti-corruption efforts. Uh, we know the President made very strong commitments for anti-corruption, and yet we see virtually no progress uh, in, uh, in dealing with the, uh, the corruption issues in, in Afghanistan. So what I hope we will do, we've been there for a while, what's gone right, build on that. We've done a lot of good things in Afghanistan. I think we all acknowledge that. This is not the country it was in, in 2001, and that's a positive note. But things have gone wrong. And have we learned from what's gone wrong so that we can take appropriate adjustments to make sure that we have an effective policy for Afghans' future and U.S. policy interests? I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Thank you, sir. Um, we'll, now we'll now turn to our witnesses on the first panel. We'll hear from two administration witnesses representing the State Department and USAID, whose portfolios include both Afghanistan and Pakistan. Our second panel includes three informed experts on Afghanistan and the region. We thank them for being here. So our first witness is uh, uh, the respected Ambassador Richard Olson, the United States Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan, and recently returned as our ambassador from Islamabad. We thank you very much for a career in public service and foreign service and for being here today. Our second witness is Donald L. Sampler, Jr., Assistant to the Administration for, Administrator for Pakistan and Afghanistan at USAID. We thank you for what you and your cohorts do around the world to, to further our U.S. interests. So with that, uh, Ambassador Olson, if you would begin, we appreciate it. I, I would just say, uh, as a courtesy to my fellow panelists here, the uh, deadline on a couple of issues is 21 minutes relative to the other thing we're working on. I may step in and out a little bit and, and miss a little bit, not out of disrespect. Thank you. Uh, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, uh, members of the committee, it's an honor to appear before you today to discuss the U.S.-Afghanistan relationship and our continuing effort to support Afghanistan's progress toward security and self-reliance. Allow me at the outset to thank the members of this committee and the American people for their generous and steadfast for our efforts in Afghanistan. In particular, I want to honor the thousands of military personnel, diplomats, and development professionals who have served and continue to serve in Afghanistan. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I recently returned from my first visit uh, in my current position as Special Representative for Afghanistan and Pakistan to Kabul and Islamabad. And I can report to you that we are at a critical moment in our work in Afghanistan and the region as we push for the launch of an Afghan-led peace process during the traditional winter lull in fighting between Afghanistan and the Taliban. The administration remains committed to a stable and secure Afghanistan, and we remain convinced that a negotiated settlement between the government of Afghanistan and the Taliban is the surest way to end the conflict. 
The government of national unity, which came to power in the first peaceful and democratic transition of power in Afghanistan's history, embodies the potential that Afghanistan has to thrive for. It has weathered tremendous adversity in its first year, but retains its democratic mandate and has demonstrated a commitment to be a partner with us in addressing our common security interests. It's no secret that the bilateral relationship between Afghanistan and Pakistan has been difficult. But President Ghani and Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif have demonstrated true leadership in trying to bridge the divide. Both sides show readiness to engage, to put uh, uh, differences aside, and to build on the meeting in Murray, Pakistan between Afghan government and Taliban representatives that took place in July of last year. Now the Taliban have a choice to join good faith negotiations for peace or to continue to fight a war they cannot win and face the consequences. A negotiated Afghan to Afghan settlement, while difficult, is possible and can be accomplished while preserving the gains made in education, health, and the rights of women and minorities over the past decade. Even as we push for progress on peace, the United States has a critical role to play in supporting continued development of Afghanistan's security capabilities. President Obama announced in October that we'll maintain 9,800 troops in Afghanistan through the end of 2016 to train, advise, and assist Afghan forces. I believe we are pursuing the right course in Afghanistan, but I want to be candid that great challenges remain. While the security in Afghanistan remains volatile, we must give credit to the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces for demonstrating tenacity, ability, and resolve in countering attacks. While much work on development remains over the past decade, U.S. assistance has made a significant and tangible difference in the lives of the Afghan people and has been critical to maintaining stability. Per capita GDP has more than quadrupled. For the first time, millions of Afghans have access to reliable electricity, healthcare, and independent media, and are connected to each other and the world through communications technology. According to the UN, we and other donors have helped Afghanistan achieve a greater increase in its standard of living over the last decade than almost any other country on Earth. The last decade's progress also is contingent upon continued support for Afghanistan. Next year at the Warsaw NATO Summit in July and the Brussels Ministerial on Afghan Development in October, we will have an opportunity to work with our international partners to lay out a plan for future security and economic assistance. Of course, our assistance comes with clear conditions and the concept of mutual accountability remains firmly in place. Advancing the fight against corruption will be of particular importance in that regard. The peace process track cannot succeed unless it is paired with a strong and credible commitment to Afghanistan's security and to its economic priorities and its political leadership. Addressing these challenges will not be easy, but I look forward to working with you on them in the weeks and months to come. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Sampler. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Carr, members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify before you today and discuss USAID's civilian assistance activities in Afghanistan. Let me also begin by thanking the individuals present today who have served in Afghanistan, as well as their families. And I'm proud to include among those brave Americans, diplomats of the U.S. Department of State, aid workers from the USAID, and the thousands of men and women working shoulder to shoulder with us as partners in Afghanistan over the past decade. 
I would also like to recognize the Afghans who continue to work and to sacrifice to make their country a place that is safe, secure, and a good neighbor in the region. The thousands of Afghans working both in and out of government to secure a bright future for themselves and their families matter. And any strategy we discuss here today is predicated upon their continued dedication and our resolute support. Our work in Afghanistan reflects USAID's mission. We partner to end extreme poverty and promote resilient democratic societies while advancing America's own security and prosperity. USAID's civilian assistance programs in Afghanistan are a critical component of our core U.S. national security objective of a stable Afghanistan that Al-Qaeda and other terrorists cannot use as a base to threaten the United States, our interests, and our persons abroad. We remain committed to assistance programs in Afghanistan that are effective, accountable, and sustainable. In my written testimony submitted for the record, I detail some of the rigorous oversight and monitoring methods that USAID has implemented to prevent waste, fraud, and abuse, and to ensure that American investments in Afghanistan are making a lasting impact. USAID's central goal in Afghanistan is to promote a stable, inclusive, and increasingly prosperous country. During the past decade, Afghanistan has made remarkable development gains across multiple sectors. Thanks to the whole of government efforts of the United States, along with our international partners, the Afghan government, and the Afghan people. The key elements of USAID's Afghanistan strategy call for making durable the significant achievements in health, education, and the gains of women, focusing on economic growth and fiscal sustainability of the government of Afghanistan, and supporting legitimate and effective Afghan governance, and in turn promoting stability. USAID's strategy going forward will be founded on our successes, informed by our failures, and shaped by our consultations with the government of Afghanistan, other donors, and the U.S. interagency. The successes have been in some cases remarkable. Specific examples include life expectancy has increased in Afghanistan from 42 years to over 62 years. Maternal mortality rate has declined by 75 percent and child mortality has decreased by 62 percent. In 2002, there were less than a million Afghans in school anywhere. Now there are over, well now there are millions of children in school and over a third of them are girls. In 2002, there were virtually no telephones in Afghanistan. Any call international had to be made over a handheld satellite phone. Today, the combined phone company coverage is 88% of the Afghan population. The telecommunications industry is Afghanistan's greatest source of foreign direct investment. It is the largest remitter of taxes to the government of Afghanistan, and it is the biggest employer in Afghanistan, employing over 138,000 Afghans. In 2002, when I first arrived in Afghanistan, only 6% of Afghans had access to electricity. Today, more than 30% of the Afghan population is connected to the grid. The Afghan government, with the support of USAID, established Afghanistan's electrical utility, DABS, just about six years ago. Today, DABS no longer receives a subsidy from the Afghan government and has turned a profit each year since 2011. While it's never comfortable to talk about failures, in an engagement as complicated and difficult as Afghanistan, failures are inevitable. What is important is that the failures be recognized as quickly as possible and that remedies be put in place to correct the failure and prevent its recurrence. USAID works hard all around the world to be an agile, adaptive, and learning organization. 
Since 2002 in Afghanistan, in virtually every sector of our portfolio, we've had to make adjustments based on our own monitoring and evaluation or on the observations of various auditors or the media. Examples of the kinds of modifications. In education, we designed and launched a community-based education program that was going to be implemented by the Ministry of Education. But we quickly discovered the ministry was not yet capable of executing this program. So no funds were dispersed, and instead we redesigned a different mechanism. The award was made to UNICEF, an international organization, and it's resulted in over 800 community-based schools and over 700 accelerating learning centers for out-of-school youth. Finally, our strategy going forward will be shaped by consultations with the government of Afghanistan, our interagency partners, and other donors. In 2012, the Tokyo Conference established a mutual accountability framework that held Afghans accountable to us and held us accountable to the Afghans. In 2014, the London Ministerial revisited those commitments and pointed the way towards a conference next year in Brussels where we will again revisit our mutual accountability. Finally, in conclusion, USAID knows well the risk and sacrifices that Americans, our troops, our diplomats, and their families face every day to serve in Afghanistan. Since 2001, 451 civilians working for USAID partners have been killed and close to 1,000 have been wounded. I have attended the funerals for U.S. civilian employees in Afghanistan who were killed. We take very seriously the investment in blood and treasure made in Afghanistan, and we work hard to be good stewards of the resources provided to us. As USAID looks to 2016 and beyond, the agency is committed to making every effort to safeguard taxpayer funds and ensure that development progress in Afghanistan is maintained and made durable in order to secure our overall national security objectives. It's an honor to be able to share with you today a small glimpse of what aid is doing in that regard, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much for that testimony. Uh, uh, I'm going to do some interaction along the way and turn it present to uh, Senator Cardin for questions. Well, once again, thank you both for the role that you have played in the development in Afghanistan. It's certainly a much different country than it was in 2001. A lot of progress has been made. But there's reason for concern about its future. So let me ask a couple questions. Ambassador Olson, first, let me ask, what are the lessons learned from Kudans? Have we made uh, strategic changes in the security arrangements in order to prevent a similar episode from occurring in the future? Um, thank you, Senator. Uh, the uh, the attack on um, on Kunduz um, was um, uh, representative of a, a real challenge that uh, the government of Afghanistan faces. Uh, the Taliban have been waging a very a particularly aggressive campaign um, in 2015 um, throughout the fighting season. And as you know, the um, Afghan National uh, Defense and Security Forces were forced to temporarily cede uh, territory um, uh, in, in, in parts of Helmand uh, as, well as, in, um, as well as in the city center of uh, Kunduz. Uh, and over the course of two weeks, uh, the, um, uh, the Taliban occupied uh, Kunduz. Um, and, uh, you know, as General, as General Campbell has acknowledged, this was a you know, public relations victory for, uh, for the Taliban. Um, it, it is important to note, however, that the Afghan National Security Forces did retake um, Kunduz um, and as the uh, country has, and ha has maintained uh, control, uh, government forces have maintained uh, control of Kunduz uh, since that time. 
the government of Afghanistan uh, is in the process of looking at lessons learned uh, from that uh, experience. Um, and uh, there has been a report uh, that has been prepared as with the uh, government of Afghanistan. Uh, and they are considering uh, the responses that they're going to make. My understanding is it includes uh, greater um, uh, lash up between provincial authorities um, and, um, and central authorities, uh, which is perhaps one of the contributing factors uh, to uh, the weakness um, uh, in, in Kunduz. Um, I, I would, of course, have to defer to my any uh, colleagues from the Defense Department on any um, specific uh, response in terms of military uh, uh, developments and, um, and the training and assist uh, program. Mr. Sample, let me turn to the question I raised uh, during my opening comments, the troubling article that I read in the New York Times that indicate that uh, the USAID programs are very, very much maybe depend upon uh, Taliban support and therefore Taliban getting more support as a result of USAID perhaps strengthening their hold contrary to our objective uh, in the travel areas. Uh, are, are we focused, I mean, there, there's short-term gains to try to help uh, in regards to our military objectives. There's long-term development goals that we're trying to achieve in Afghanistan. And when we confuse the two, sometimes we get into trouble. Are we getting our dollar's value? And is there any truth to the, uh, to the report that the Taliban it's taking credit for the aid coming into the tribal areas. Senator, thank you for the question. I, um, headlines like the one you cited are not how I like to start my mornings when I wake up each day and, and look through the paper. Um, Jim Reason's work is good, and the New York Times stories are typically um, fact-based. This one has uh, some issues that I will, I will challenge. There was a study done that this, this report was based on, um, on measuring the impact of stabilization activities in Afghanistan. And this was requested by USAID. It was our own attempt to examine our and make sure that there were not gaps or problems. We could identify them if there were. Yeah. They studied over 5,000 villages. They conducted uh, 100,000 interviews. And of the 5,000 villages they studied, either five or 13, depending on how you run the math, they found a correlation, not causality, but they found correlation between our programs and an increase in Taliban support. Um, so the, the story focused unnaturally, in my opinion, on what is basically one-tenth of one percent of the work that we did in Afghanistan, where, in fact, that we discovered ourselves that there may have been a correlation between our work and support for the Taliban. What's not mentioned in this story is the other 99.9 percent, literally, of the programs, which either showed no change or showed an actual improvement in support for the government. In Afghanistan, as is every, the case everywhere, all politics are local. So these local projects are important to give Afghans in these villages a sense that they are part of the community and part of Afghanistan. With respect to the second half of your question about short-term versus long-term, part of the challenge of being a development professional in a place like Afghanistan is making sure that the important initiatives that are done to achieve short-term gains correspond with and support long-term development objectives. That's not always easy, and in some, in some cases it's actually problematic. But the other part of my job, of which I'm quite proud, is that the team that I have in Afghanistan that works for Ambassador Olson and Ambassador McKinley do an excellent job at making sure we do get a return on our investment. And when we don't, we stop the program to find out why we aren't. 
Thank you. Ambassador Olson, I don't think we're going to make progress in Afghanistan unless we really have changes in anti-corruption activities. I know the President has made pretty strong statements about fighting corruption, but we haven't seen much action in fighting corruption. A later witness will give us some specific recommendations, such as a confirmed Attorney General or uh, providing a, a strong monitoring and evaluation committee, uh, passing laws that provide stronger penalties, and implementing the EITI. Do you have a game plan for uh, holding Afghanistan um, to, towards uh, tr uh, accountability on their anti-corruption efforts and not just the statement of the president, which I think is sincere, but has not been backed by any action? Uh, thank you very much for the, the question, Senator. Um, uh, we are indeed intent on holding the government of Afghanistan uh, to its promises to address uh, the question of endemic corruption in uh, Afghanistan. Uh, just to review a little bit what, is, what has happened so far, um, we were encouraged uh, by President Khani's a decision to reopen uh, the investigation into the Kabul bank scandal and, um, and the effort of the government of Afghanistan to recover assets. Um, we were then, I, I must say, discouraged by the fact that one of the main co-conspirators was released uh, from prison um, and started working on uh, Kabul housing development projects. Um, uh, and. Uh, uh, at this point, we understand that Mr. Ferozzi is, is back in jail uh, and the deal has been invalidated um, uh, and we will continue to watch that. Uh, but more generally, uh, the government of Afghanistan under President Ghani and with the full support of uh, uh, CEO Abdullah has adopted improved anti-money laundering regulations, prosecuted judges complicit in the release of a drug trafficker and established a national procurement uh, commission, uh, which halted a series of illegal procurements in the Ministry of Defense um, and Interior. Uh, going forward, I think we really need to continue to condition um, our assistance to uh, the updated mutual accountability framework that was decided uh, at Tokyo. Uh, that'll be an important part of our discussions with the government of Afghanistan <clears throat> as we prepare for the uh, big conferences coming up this summer, first in Warsaw, dealing with security assistance, uh, and then um, in Brussels in October, uh, dealing with um, uh, uh, development assistance. And I think we need to um, update uh, the, um, uh, the mutual accountability framework and come up with very specific um, uh, conditions for future assistance. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Perdue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Ambassador, thank you for, or thank both of you for your service, but uh, I, I want to focus on a couple reports that are just coming out. Um, you know, when I was there in April, and I, had a, I was honored to meet uh, with General Campbell, uh, President Ghani, CEO Abdullah, and uh, our Ambassador, Ambassador McKinney, and I have to tell you, just, just some seven or eight months later, it's shocking to see the, the difference in taking two Polaroid shots of the situation. Uh, they were just coming out, uh, getting ready to go into the uh, fighting season. And of course now, General Campbell just last uh, month, or in October rather, says, and this was a testimony to Congress, there was no winter lull this year in, in fighting. Since February, the fighting has been almost continuous. 
The violence has moved beyond the traditional insurgent strongholds such that today over half of the 398 uh, districts are under high or extreme Taliban threat today. Um, I'm coming to a quick question, but um, Kunduz we know about. Then the Pentagon today just released its report to Congress. And I know we don't have a DOD rep here, but I want to get from the State Department your perspective on not only that report, but the, the situation as it stands right now. Um, the report says that Taliban <coughs> attacks and higher, we're having given higher casual the Afghan forces. Um, the Afghan-Pakistani border region is a haven for various groups. I was shocked at the number of groups it talks about in that report. And then Dr. Fred Kagan recently in an AEI report testified that he's not real sure, he's, not, and I quote, not confident there will actually be in Afghanistan when our next president takes office. That's a, that's a, a severe uh, description of the picture. But given the situation right now and, and the fact that, you know, we've got, I, I guess, 80, the military in Afghanistan has some 180,000 troops. We still have 9,800. General Campbell uh, won that argument, but we're moving to a situation where we're about to have 5,000 or so U.S. troops there. My question is, what does next year look like? I mean, what does this fighting season look like, and, and how deep is this threat? ISIS has grown dramatically, as we see in the reports, just since April. In April, it wasn't even a, a major conversation. Now it is, is a primary part of any dialogue you have with people in Afghanistan. So from a State Department perspective, what, what is our strategy right now in Afghanistan? Thank you very much, Senator, for that, for that question. I would say, looking back um, at uh, the, uh, uh, the past uh, few months, and, and of course I'm not really um, in a position to describe um, uh, the military response, uh, which is uh, the responsibility of my colleague and friend, uh, General, uh, General Campbell. But I will say that it strikes me at a political level that part of the reason we saw such a strong uh, Taliban offensive um, over the course of the past few months was in part a reaction to the revelation of the death of, of Mullah uh, Omar. And I think that there was um, uh, intense competition amongst various uh, Taliban commanders, um, which played itself out in part um, in increased violence. Um, it has been, it is very clear, and I was just in Kabul last week, I met uh, twice with, with President Ghani, and uh, he uh, is absolutely determined that, that 2016 cannot be uh, a repetition of 20, 2015. Uh, and in particular, the question of reduction of violence is, is um, hugely important to him. In that regard, um, I, I think this raises uh, the question of a reconciliation process, an Afghan-led and Afghan-owned reconciliation process. At the Heart of Asia conference in Islamabad last week, um, uh, we held a trilateral meeting um, between the United States, Pakistan, and Afghanistan at which we recommitted ourselves to um, an Afghan-led and Afghan-owned peace process during the remaining lull in the, uh, uh, in, the, in the fighting season. And that included, for the first time, uh, a commitment language that, uh, when, that all parties who uh, refuse to come to the table uh, will be dealt with by all means uh, available. Uh, so uh, I think that um, we have to use uh, the, re the, uh, the, the remaining time in the lull uh, to work on uh, getting uh, an Afghan-led, Afghan-owned reconciliation uh, process going. I think there was much more of a meeting of the minds between uh, President Ghani and the Pakistani leadership uh, on this issue uh, than there has been in, in some time. 
So we're we're moving toward a negotiation. Yeah. So there's no, there really isn't a, a strategy being talked about of, about how to defeat the Taliban. Is that is that what I hear? Um, to be to be very clear, I I would not say that there is no um, there is no strategy for fighting against the Taliban. But I'm just saying that that's not my particular piece no, of 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 this uh, puzzle. I, I, um, I think that a political settlement uh, is an important element of uh, uh, and working towards a political settlement is an important element um, of our multidimensional approach. Uh, to Afghanistan. It has been for some time. I mean, it has been at least since President Obama's um, Bagram speech of uh, May 2012 and even before that. The reconciliation um, led by the Afghans is an important element of what we're trying to do. Can I ask you briefly, uh, with the time remaining, <clears throat> uh, the Iranian influence in Tal in, uh, with the Taliban has grown this year, according to several reports. Uh, can you speak to that, and, and what is the Afghan government doing? And as a corollary to that, we know there have been outreaches from uh, Kabul to Moscow. Uh, from a State Department perspective, can you speak to both of those, the Iranian support for the Taliban, the growth of ISIS, and then the third piece, the uh, overtures that uh, Afghanistan is making to Moscow? Well, we've, um, uh, we've seen the reports uh, w with regard to uh, the Iranian actions, uh, of course. Um, uh, uh, we. Uh, don't understand uh, why the Iranians uh, would uh, be involved with the Taliban. We don't think it's um, uh, productive. Um, and we think that all of, um, uh, all of Afghanistan's neighbors uh, should commit uh, to non-interference in respecting Pakistan's territorial um, integrity. Um, with regard to, to Russia, uh, this is also a topic that we have uh, discussed uh, with uh, with the Afghans. I met last week with my um, with my Russian counterpart um, in um, uh, in Islamabad. It was a preliminary meeting, uh, but he pledged um, that he would that Russia would engage constructively um, uh, and continue to cooperate with us. I think we have to test that proposition as we do um, all such. Uh, propositions, but we'll intend to work close, work with the with the Russians where we can, uh, consistent with our overall Russia policy. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, you know, if you believe in, in the limits of American power as a catalyst for change abroad, absent a local commitment to do so. Um, the last 15 years of Afghanistan are certainly proof of concept. You guys have really hard jobs. Um, and um, uh, I'm glad that you're here uh, briefing us. But um, Mr. Ambassador Olson, you talked about this idea that um, we are prepared to hold the Afghans accountable for their lack of progress on anti-corruption efforts. Uh, with all due respect, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that that's actually true. Um, I don't think over the last 15 years there's any evidence to suggest that the United States is willing to do things and send messages to the Afghans to telegraph that we're serious in any way, shape, or form about them getting serious about anti-corruption efforts. We seem to have made an independent decision that we have national security interests at stake in Afghanistan, that we are going to commit the amount of resources necessary to stop Afghanistan from becoming a safe haven again for terrorists. 
and that we are going to prioritize that, which involves a significant amount of American resources there, with or without a commitment from the Afghan government to sort their own mess out. And so it seems to me, having you know, gone to Afghanistan you know, four times, five times, having heard the same story over and over again about how we were pressuring them to take on corruption and, and, and how little progress we've seen, that we should just admit that our priority is actually not to encourage local political change. Our priority is to commit just enough resources to stop Afghanistan from once again becoming a safe haven for terrorists um, and, and admit that that's ultimately our number one priority and it means that it often forces the secondary goal of local political change to become subverted to that first priority. Tell me, I'm sure you think I'm wrong, <laughs> um, but, but, but tell me why for those of us who have heard people tell us that we're gonna start holding the Afghans accountable for a lack of progress on corruption, why any of us should believe that we're actually ever prepared to send the tough message to them necessary to get them to change? Well, thank you, Senator. And first of all, let me, let me thank you for your kind words at, uh, at the outset. Um, uh, we, do, we do have hard jobs, but um, uh, we're, they're important ones, and uh, we're committed to following through on them. Um, I think that uh, one, one thing that's, that's worth noting is um, uh, the, uh, the Tokyo conference in the summer of, uh, of 2012 did establish this framework for mutual accountability between the donors um, and uh, the government of Afghanistan. And um, that from, I think from that moment forward, there has been greater conditionality um, on the part of not just uh, American assistance, but the international community's um, assistance. And uh, this is a recognition um, that in order for the, the government to uh, have uh, the legitimacy that it needs to carry out counterterrorism operations um, and establish security throughout the country, that it needs to um, address the perception of, uh, of corruption. So I don't, I don't see the goal quite as, uh, as much in contrast, uh, perhaps, um, as, as you do. The other, the other point is I think there's a, a great willingness under this government, in particular under, under President uh, Ghani, um, to actually uh, address the issue of corruption, and he recognizes the, the challenge that it represents for his, uh, for his uh, administration. So I think in the overall interest of good governance, which is um, a, a hugely important part of counterinsurgency, um, that, it is, that it is essential that we, that we continue to apply um, conditionality on these issues. I'd, I'd like to ask if you uh, agree with my colleague, uh, Mr. Sampler, has anything to add on this. Well, let me, let me, let me ask a, a, another question. You can maybe answer this one as well. Um, then I'd be interested f for you to articulate what you think has given the Taliban this political space in which to operate. Because if you, if you read through the litany of progress that we absolutely have made on the number of Afghans who have access to schooling, to the, um, to the number of homes that now have access to electricity, right? Um, that should suggest a level of economic stability and, and economic opportunity that would give local populations faith in aligning themselves with 
local or, or regional or federal governance. Um, and they're not doing that, um, which suggests that the political space is being created perhaps by a lack of faith in the legitimacy of the government because of, of corruption. And so it's sort of hard, again, from your perspective, from USAID's perspective, to hear all this progress we've made, but then to have no evidence that it's actually resulting in less support for the Taliban when you look at the breadth of their operations over the course of the year. So I guess I'd be interested from your perspective in terms of what you think is giving them the, is giving the Taliban the political space if you accept the notion that there has been a lot of progress made in terms of the programming that we've delivered. Well, you know, I have to say one of the, one of the challenges here is um, is attempting to peer into from the outside and figure out what the uh, the, the Taliban motivations um, actually are and what the Taliban grievances are. And I think our knowledge on this is um, is frankly imperfect. Um, I do think it is one of the reasons why it is important to have an Afghan-led and Afghan-owned reconciliation process going forward, so that these issues can be identified um, and. Uh, we can uh, attempt to uh, attempt to identify what some of the uh, grievances uh, may be, um, uh, but um, I, I would defer to uh, to Larry on the other questions of assistance. Uh, Senator, thank you for the question. With respect to corruption, two observations, and then I'll, if you don't mind, I'll answer the second question. The first is how personally President Ghani takes the corruption issue. Um, anecdotally, I have sat in the procurement. Uh, commission meetings, which he personally chairs every Saturday night, and they are incredibly painful because President Ghani, based on his World Bank experience and his personal experience in Afghanistan, understands how pernicious corruption is, how hard it is to eradicate, and how it has to be, as the ambassador said, a priority for his government. So at the macro level, he is personally and aggressively involved. At the micro level, he's been looking for technical solutions that will help him get a jump start on fighting corruption and generating revenue. And the one example I'll cite is USAID has been helping President Ghani with his customs collections. Much of the corruption at the customs border positions is face-to-face -face corruption where a truck driver is approached and extorted for money, not once or twice, but in some cases many as six times by individuals saying that they represent the government in taking money. By allowing them to do their customs payments electronically, the face-to-face -face engagements are no longer necessary. And President Ghani expects both to reduce corruption at the, at the customs houses and increase revenues. And we have early indications on the three customs border positions where, they've where they have instituted electronic transfers that they have, in fact, increased the customs collections at those three border crossings. So the problem has not gone away by any stretch of the imagination. But with the election of President Ghani and CEO Abdullah, there is a new commitment, I would argue, and they have demonstrated that to us and to me. To your point about political space, with all due respect, I would describe it differently. The Asia Foundation has done a survey of the Afghan population, which does not show any increase in the popularity of the Taliban at all. In fact, they are less popular than ever before. But by use of force, the Taliban forces themselves physically into spaces where they're not welcome. The Afghan population at the individual family level have learned over decades of combat how to survive. And it may be that in the, it's in their best interest, or they perceive it to be in their best interest at the moment, to acquiesce to the Taliban control of their area. 
but I'm fairly confident, and I will actually yield to Ali Jalali. It's good that you have an actual Afghan here today to talk about how Afghans see these problems. I don't necessarily think that they've taken advantage of political space. They have taken advantage of the government's inability to project force effectively to every corner of the country at the same time. Senator Brasso. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Ambassador Olson, I want to talk a little bit about what's happening with ISIS. And, and uh, I know you were just in Afghanistan last week. I was there for Thanksgiving uh, up in, in, in northern Afghanistan and hearing more and more about the spread of ISIS across the Middle East. It's a, a, obviously serious concerns to us in regard to national security. Yesterday, the Department of Defense warned about the growth of, of ISIS in Afghanistan. Uh, the report from the Department of Defense stated that ISIS, quote, has progressed from its initial exploratory phase to a point where they're openly fighting the Taliban for establishment of a safe haven and are becoming more operationally active. It went on to say that ISIS has claimed responsibility for the IED attacks uh, against the United Nations vehicle, attacks against, I think, 10 checkpoints in September. When I was in, in Kabul, I, you know, as you know, they're not taking vehicles back and forth to the embassy. Things are now by helicopter just because of this increased concern. Can you talk about the best estimates of the number of ISIS fighters in Afghanistan? Thank you, Senator. I will, I will have to get back to you on a number on our, on our estimate. I don't have that with me today. Um, uh, we um, are aware of the emergence of uh, uh, Daesh in, um, uh, in Nangarhar province uh, in particular. Um, and this is something that we've had as, you know, part of our ongoing dialogue, not just with Afghanistan, but also with Pakistan. Um, and um, we take very seriously uh, the uh, potential emergence of, uh, of Daesh um, in, um, uh, in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, that said, um, our understanding of the dynamic right now is that in fact these are disaffected Taliban factions and commanders who have switched allegiance uh, to Daesh. That's not to underestimate um, the, the danger that this represents, but it is also to, to suggest that there is not necessarily a direct linkage and flow of material or fighters from the Middle East uh, to uh, the Afghanistan-Pakistan uh, 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 region. So far, uh, Daesh has been confined uh, to the southern districts of, uh, of uh, Nangarhar and will continue to work with Afghanistan and Pakistan and to the extent we can work with them jointly. Um, to um, ensure that they are responding to this emerging threat. Well, I wonder if you could help us, because I've, I've heard the same thing when I was there and asked some of these questions, and the same thing, that this is some of these are disaffected Taliban members heading, heading over to ISIS. Um, the issue of pay came up. And could you talk a little bit about how different people are paid differently in Afghanistan? I mean, the pecking order seemed to be that... Uh, ISIS was getting the most money, the people that were willing to fight for ISIS, and then the next level down from there was the Taliban, and then the level below that was the Afghan army, and then the level below that was the, the Afghan police. So for people that are focused on the monetary aspects of this, there was actually a pecking order of which side you were on and how much you got paid. Yeah. Well, I have, I have heard these stories as well about um, uh, the relative um, pay. Um, these are questions that I think um, need some uh, to be to be seriously addressed. 
Um, you know, one of the one of the questions, of course, that we will be addressing at the international level in um, in Warsaw uh, in July is uh, continuing sustainment of the Afghan national uh, security and um, uh, and defense forces. Um, and I also think it highlights the continued importance of dealing with the financing of these organizations. Does it? Does you see any evidence that either Taliban or ISIS is interested in actually governing Afghanistan, or they simply want to be you know, either left alone in their own safe havens, or just create more more problems? The uh, the Taliban. Yeah. Okay. Uh, their um, uh, their rhetoric. Uh, certainly suggests that they um, intend uh, to uh, uh, try to once again rule Afghanistan as they did during the 90s. Uh, their official title, of course, is uh, they call themselves the Islamic Emirate uh, of uh, Afghanistan. Um, and uh, so uh, it, we have seen, including in, in such um, uh, preliminary, the preliminary talks that took place in Murray um, in, uh, in July, uh, that the, the Taliban does indeed uh, assert national um, aspirations, but um, is perhaps not surprising that they would do so. Uh, in terms of troop level, and uh, uh, Senator Purdue, uh, Purdue asked about specifically the troop level, the 9,800 uh, troops uh, currently until the end of, of 16. I think the administration originally it was uh, only about a, a, a thousand troops uh, by the end of 16. Given the current security situation, the increased violence, does the State Department believe that the United States should go down to 5,500 troops after 2016 or a thousand? Or what are your thoughts on the on the numbers? Well, um, as the president uh, has announced, we will have 9,800 uh, troops through. Uh, most of 2016 through the bulk of the uh, of the fighting season, um, and um, and we believe that the commitment of the uh, 5,500 for the period beyond uh, is important uh, for uh, the continued train and assist mission, the continuing CT mission in uh, in Afghanistan, and I think it also sends an important regional uh, signal, um, a signal that the United States remains engaged and committed uh, in the region, um, and, um, it, and I think it also sends an important signal to the Taliban, um, which will be helpful uh, as part of a reconciliation process. And then just final question, could you just give me your assessment of the Afghan National Security Forces? The Afghan National Security Forces, the National Security and Defense Forces, um, have faced great challenges um, over uh, over the course of the last year. Uh, they have, however, um, uh, shown a marked willingness to fight. Uh, there continues to be, uh, they continue to need support in uh, logistics, uh, sustainment, um, all of the enablers that actually make um, a, um, uh, an army able to fight. And in other words, they need some of the Ministry of Defense um, uh, uh, functions. In that regard, it would be helpful to have a Minister of Defense. Uh, thank you, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to the witnesses. Um, it is a very, very challenging service, and I appreciated, uh, Mr. Sampler, you're going into some of the metrics of improved quality of life in Afghanistan that have been achieved with a tremendous amount of work by Americans and coalition partners, and I especially appreciated that you acknowledge the service of 
our troops, but also of all of the civilians and USAID and N NGOs. I mean, it has been a comprehensive effort, and things like the life expectancy expansion are nearly revolutionary if you look at what that has meant to Afghanistan. But I know we all want the, that progress to not be a temporary phenomenon to continue, and that's why we're here. One of the things that troubles me, I think the chairman in his opening comments talked about the divergence between what we often hear about Afghanistan in classified and unclassified settings. And I had an opportunity yesterday to be in, with others in a classified setting on Afghanistan. And I was struck by the divergence between different classified settings I go to. And in particular, the divergence between classified information conveyed by folks in the intel community versus classified information conveyed by folks in the armed services community. I'm on the armed services committee too. And um, I think a little bit of tension between the intel community approach and the armed services approach is not that unusual. But I will say, and I've only been here three years, but in three years here, I've never heard as broad a divergence. And I don't even really think I can say the issues without jeopardizing what may be classified. But I, I don't think I've heard as broad a divergence between classified accounts, between the intel community and the armed services community um, in any other instance except current status of a number of issues, really important, really fundamental, really critical issues about the state of affairs in Afghanistan. And it's very, very troubling. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Um, you each have joint billets with Afghanistan and Pakistan, and I'm really interested in your thoughts about the current Afghanistan and Pakistan relationship. And we, we know it doesn't have to be from a classified hearing, from public accounting of Taliban activity in Pakistan that Taliban have used Pakistan as a safe haven over time. And there's a, a very important degree to which Pakistan's cooperation with Afghanistan and vice versa is critical to stability in, in Afghanistan. What is your current perception from, your, from each of your respective roles about the degree of cooperation between the Afghan and Pakistan governments, especially when it comes to these issues of security and the counterterrorism effort? Um, thank you, um, Senator Kane. Uh, there's, um, I'm just coming out of uh, three years in Pakistan, uh, and I can assure you that this has been uh, at the center of our dialogue uh, with Pakistanis. And I think there's, it's safe to say that I, there was no conversation uh, that I had with the security establishment in Pakistan that did not include a very direct, very frank discussion about um, specifically the Haqqani network, but uh, the Taliban um, in general. Um, and we will continue to have those very frank discussions. Uh, the Pakistanis have taken action against the TTP. Um, they launched Operation uh, Zarbi Azb in June of 2014 and have largely cleared North Waziristan Agency, which was you know, a longstanding objective for us to get uh, their sovereign authority reestablished over all of their, um, all of their uh, territory. Uh, but they have focused more on the TTP uh, the Pakistani Taliban than they have on external um, uh, terrorist actors, that is to say actors that threaten their neighbors, whether mm -hmm. Afghanistan or, um, or India. So we will have to continue to, uh, to push them um, on, these, on these particular uh, uh, points. That said, I think there is a recognition in Pakistan 
that there has been bleed over between the Pakistani Taliban and the Afghan Taliban, and it's not so clear that even if they wanted to distinguish between good and bad anymore, that they can. Uh, and so that's one of the, uh, I, I think that creates an opportunity um, that we will want to um, you know, pursue as much as possible. Uh, moving it just quickly to the state of Afghanistan-Pakistan relations, um, we feel that last week was actually fairly significant. President Ghani went to the Heart of Asia conference. Uh, President, uh, Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif committed to respecting Afghanistan's sovereignty, territorial integrity, respect for the government and, uh, and its constitution, which was important language uh, for, the, um, uh, for the Afghans. In, in the trilateral session that we conducted, uh, they committed to um, uh, resuming a peace process as soon as possible and to um, using all available means against those uh, members of the Taliban who do not join uh, the peace process. So I think, um, uh, although there's a long history of, uh, of tension between Afghanistan and Pakistan, I think after last week we feel that uh, relations are at least somewhat improved. Please, Mr. Sampler, and then I have one more question. Senator, thank you. Um, with respect to demonstrated collaboration and cooperation between Afghanistan and Pakistan, and I would add the other nations in the region, um, recently CASA 1000 was signed. That's an energy corridor running from Central Asia all the way down through Afghanistan and Pakistan. That has enormous consequences, positive consequences for all the member countries. They've also just this past week broken ground on TAPI, which is a Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India energy corridor, which will also have connective resonance for the countries in the region. I think this is one of those places where the security focus and the commerce focus are going to overlap. To the degree that we can get the countries in this part of the region working together on economic growth, they have skin in the game to provide stability and vice versa. To provide, they have to provide the stability in order to see the economic growth. Um, there has also been an increase in cross-border trade with respect to things as simple as fruits and nuts. Uh, Afghanistan is expecting in 2015 to see um, $36 million worth of their produce being shipped abroad largely to Pakistan. So it's there. And I would like to add, I very much appreciate your observations about the divergent opinions of the different communities with respect to observing places like Afghanistan. And I will share what I was told as a young soldier when I was first exposed to classified information. I was told information isn't classified because it's more correct than other information and other perceptions. It's classified because of how it was collected. And what I get from my implementing partners on the ground in Afghanistan is that the Afghanistan they see and touch and live in every day differs depending on which province and which district they're in. In some provinces, they would absolutely agree with the intelligence community's fairly dire estimates. But in others, they are actually making progress on value chains, on exports, on being able to educate sons and daughters. So it's not, in my humble opinion, as simple as is sometimes portrayed. But I very much appreciate your defining that. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Udall. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman, and, and uh, thank you both for your, um, your service to the country. We really appreciate all of the hard work in what, is, what are very, very difficult circumstances. Ambassador Olson, you, you mentioned in your, your um, opening statement here, the administration remains committed to a stable and secure Afghanistan and we remain convinced that a negotiated settlement between the government of Afghanistan and the Taliban is the surest way to end the conflict. And I, I'm wondering, I have the same um, 
impression that that um, uh, that Senator Kane does. I'm not on the Armed Services Committee, but that there there's a very stark difference here between between some of the intelligence. But that uh, that aside, let let me ask um, if if we're wanting to get um, them to the peace table in this Afghan-led uh, peace process, um, isn't, the, isn't the Taliban have to be at a point in, the, um, in, in their situation in the conflict where they feel there's a reason for them to come to the table? Where and, and looking at it from my perspective, your testimony and others here, that they're resurgent, they're doing better, they're capturing cities, they're releasing people from prisons. I mean, they're, they're making major gains. And so what, what is, uh, and we're drawing our forces down. I mean, what, what convinced me that they're, they really want in good faith to come to the table? And the question is addressed to well, both of you. Yeah, Senator, Senator Udall, thank you so much. That's um, a very thoughtful question. Um, it strikes me, um, that there are a couple of things that uh, give us some leverage um, in this in this situation. Uh, f first of all, um, the um, the Taliban uh, do seem to uh, desire some degree of international political legitimacy. Um, they recognize uh, apparently, and it's and I and I have to I will say at the outset that I think we have to be cautious about what we know about the Taliban and, and what, we, what we presume. But it does appear that um, uh, as a result of their historical experience when they were governing in the 1990s and were isolated and cut off from the outside world, and Afghanistan is a country that has always been reliant to some extent on external assistance, I think that they look to international legitimacy as an important objective. And the only way that that could be um, achieved is through some kind of political settlement. Uh, the second element is what I alluded to before, which is uh, the question of pressure. And I think it's significant in this regard that we have the language coming out of the trilateral statement last week um, in Islamabad talking about the use of all available means against those who are not prepared to uh, to reconcile. The, the, um, did, um, Mr. Sampler, do you have any comment on the sides of this from your perspective from aid and that, that indicate to you that, uh, there's a real sincere, uh, effort on, on the part of the Taliban to be a part of a peace process? The only observation I would be able to make is that in order to be a player in the economic growth that we hope will occur in that part of the world, as the ambassador said, they would have to be a legitimate partner and a legitimate player, and they are in no way considered legitimate at this point. That's a very indirect measure, but that's the only input that I would have. You know, as you, as you talk about um, economic development, I mean, the, the security securities affected uh, Afghanistan's economic, I, I'm trying to probe now if, uh, uh, on their economic outlook, if this, what's the status of some of the major mining, energy, and other capital projects that investors such as China and India uh, have subscribed to? What projects are underway in producing revenue, if any? Uh, which projects are stalled, and, and why are they stalled? 
You, you talked about the exports to Pakistan, but I'm talking about these bigger projects that, that uh, you're aware of, I'm sure. Certainly. One of the things that encourages me about President Ghani's cabinet is that he has brought in uh, typically younger, very technocratic ministers. And since you asked about mining, I'll use the Minister of Mines and Petroleum as an example. Uh, Minister Saba showed up at that ministry and told me he had 390 vacant civil service positions. And I said, well, how many have you filled? And he said, well, there's about 20 that are filled, but 390 are vacant. So the ministry was very much a Potemkin ministry. It had strength at the top, but there was nothing behind it. And with this ministry, he was expected to pursue fair, open, and transparent procurements for uh, mineral rights, for gas rights, um, and for exports of the, of the same. What he's done is he's filled about half the vacancies at this point in time. He's moved forward on a gas pipeline in the north of Afghanistan that for 12 years prior had not been moved on. He has identified some very low-hanging fruit and not the most lucrative mining sectors, to be honest. Talc powder is not considered sexy or lucrative, but it is an area where he believes he can, um, the, the state will be able to exercise a monopoly on and, and collect uh, taxes and tariffs on the mining of, of talc. Um, another is lapis lazuli, which is the, uh, the jewelry that's found, uh, the, the, the precious uh, minerals uh, found only in Afghanistan. So they're focusing on finding ways to, to achieve quick results. But these are not things that are typically done quickly. The, the U.S. interest has been that the ministry build the capacity to do it equitably and transparently. And I think President Ghani's ministers are focusing on doing that. Thank you. Please, Ambassador. Yeah, Senator, I would just I would just add what um, my my colleague Larry had mentioned before, which is um, uh, the forward movement on both TAPI, uh, the uh, uh, the uh, the pipeline, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India pipeline, which is a project that has been in fruition for something like nearly 30 years, um, and is now. Um, much closer uh, to actually moving forward. Um, I mean, it, it's uh, that's quite that's quite significant. Uh, and the other is Casa 1000, which doesn't have quite as venerable a history, but has been around for a while. But um, the power purchasing agreement was just signed within the last week. So I think those are those are positive indicators. Are, are Indian and Ch India or China involved in either one of those? Well, the ultimate concept for uh, for TAPI uh, is that it would go on to Pakistan uh, and India. Uh, I believe that the latest agreement is between Turkmenistan uh, and um, and Afghanistan. Um, uh, so there are still some uh, negotiations to be done, but it's very the indication is very positive. Do you? Non sequitur, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't note that. Um, Tomorrow in Nairobi, Afghanistan will be accepted into the World Trade Organization. Um, that is not in and of itself, it is in and of itself an accomplishment, and it's been several years in the making. But it begins a very difficult journey for Afghanistan to make the kinds of procedural and legal adjustments that they have to make in order for the kinds of programmings you're describing to be both productive in the short run and sustainable. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I apologize. I had to go in and out, so I missed some of the questions, and I may be redundant, and I apologize for that. But Mr. Sampler, did you serve at USAID when we were in Iraq? Uh, yes, sir, I did. Were you ever part of the provincial reconstruction teams or that effort that took place? Was I ever part of the what? The provincial reconstruction teams in USAID? No, sir, I served in Baghdad. You served in Baghdad. Ms. Tolson, were you involved in, when we were involved in Iraq? 
Um, yes, Senator, I served in Iraq from December of uh, 2003 to March of 2004 in a governorate team in Najaf, Iraq, which was a predecessor to the PRTs. Well, you all correct me if I'm wrong, but my recollection of our strategy, and the title of this hearing is the administration strategy in Afghanistan, but I want to reflect back to Iraq for a second and my experience there. Our strategy in Iraq, obviously, was to stabilize the country through the use of soft power and things like USAID and parental reconstruction teams to win the people over, leave enough of a residual force to have security in the country, and hopefully win them over to be an independent, free democracy in a very dangerous part of the world. Is that, wasn't that about right to describe our strategy? Yeah, yes, it is. I don't have responsibility for Iraq right now. No, I know. I'm not, no, so, this is not course, a trick question. I'm just, yeah. I'm just and feel, <laughs> feel free to correct me if I'm wrong in this, because I'm trying to get to a, yes. a point. Yes. What worries me, I read General Campbell's statements about the growth of ISIL and the growth of, and the strength of the Taliban and reflected back to Iraq. I walked in the streets of Ghazaria with a U.S. rifle company that was handing out micro loans, and we were helping small businesses grow through the PRTs, and we were really winning the country over, and then we left. Our military presence left and ISIL came in. Now, I know the president has decided to leave 5,000, I believe that's the right number, troops in Afghanistan. Is that not correct? Is, is that enough to prevent what happened in Iraq from happening again in Afghanistan, where there's so little protection that we can't let the soft power we want to use to win the people over actually take hold in terms of our strategy? That's the question I'm getting to. Uh, thank you, Senator. I, I think there are some um, important differences uh, between uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, I would highlight a couple of them. Uh, one is that we do have a bilateral security agreement uh, with Afghanistan, um, and that uh, is what allowed the president to make the decision he did uh, to allow troops to stay longer uh, in Afghanistan. Of course, we did not have that. Um, in Iraq. Uh, I think it's also fair to say for all the challenges that uh, the government of national unity faces uh, in Afghanistan, it is a more inclusive government um, and brings together more elements of, uh, of the population. Uh, and so uh, I don't think you have uh, the situation where there is one particular ethnic group in Afghanistan that is feeling uh, marginalized as a group. Obviously, uh, there are. It's a complex ethnic situation, and and um, and but the the, uh, the political differences tend to cleave across sectarian lines rather than um, in alignment with uh, sectarian lines. And I think that's probably the the, the most important point that I would make. Um, this is, of course, a very soft subject, and it's probably more impressionistic than anything you can reduce to a metric. But there is a very definite sense of Afghan nationalism um, as uh, uh, that all Afghans or most Afghans subscribe to. Um, and um, the country does not have uh, a tradition of, uh, uh, let, me, let me not overstate this, there is not as much of a tradition of sectarianism, ethnic um, and religious sectarianism in the country. And there's a very strong sense of national identity and history, which helps to bring people together. Uh, that means the conflict is more about who's going to run the place than whether the place is going to fall apart. Which I really appreciate that answer, and this is an observation I'll make where I may be also very wrong, but the reason Afghanistan's been at war for 300 years is because of that strong sense of national unity 
they wanted they wanted to be in control of their own destiny and fought whoever tried to control them. Is that correct? Yeah, Afghan history is a complex, uh, <laughs> complex subject. But, but I think national but, unity yes. is one of the contributing factors, is it not? Yes. Uh, well, there there is a very strong sense of nationalism which has been mobilized um, uh, against foreigners at various times. I think it's worth noting in that regard that um, that over the past 14 years, the Afghan people have been remarkably welcoming of um, of our forces, um, and I think they are. Uh, more welcome than any predecessor uh, foreign forces uh, in Afghanistan's history, and that's a remarkable achievement. Credit to our armed forces, by the way. Well, thanks to both of you for your service, and thank you for answering the questions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much. Um, I know we're about to close out, and we have another panel. Um, just out of curiosity, to, to follow up a little bit on Senator Kane's comments about the diverging views. Uh, I will say for what it's worth, uh, I know I had a private meeting with you, um, Ambassador Olson. We had the classified briefing, and for what it's worth, uh, while you obviously speak in a more statesmanlike manner, um, the, the views of what is happening in Afghanistan were very aligned. I mean, uh, the meeting we had in our office, the classified briefing yesterday was very much aligned. I mean, we've got some, some issues that we need to deal with. Um, why do you think there is that divergent view on the other side that takes place? I know that you work closely with our armed services. Uh, how could it be, uh, as involved as you are there, both of you, that uh, we have an alignment over here at the State Department and with our intelligence, but uh, an, a disalignment, if you will, um, uh, over on the other sectors? Well, all I can all I can say, Senator, is um, that we really we really do try, uh, particularly in the AFPAC uh, uh, arena where I have been working for the last four years, um, to bring about um, a whole of government approach, not just in terms of our operations and what we're what we're trying to do, um, but also in our um, in our assessments. Um, it's evident to me. Uh, from your comments today that we have some um, to, some work to do uh, in that regard, and we probably owe you um, some um, some better um, uh, uh, alignment um, on how we are thinking. Well, I actually found the alignments we had yesterday to be to be very good. Um, but uh, so so let's, let's, I just the Taliban issue. Now, obviously, we came into Afghanistan. In 01, the issue was to, to end the Taliban's existence and dominion over government at the time. Now, now they are making, they're changing the facts on the ground. Is that fair? Uh, to some extent, yeah. I, think, I don't think we know yet how much those, those facts on the ground have actually been changed. And there, there are discussions about uh, over time, I mean, we've made some accommodating comments publicly, our government has, relative to their potential involvement in the government down the road. I mean, is that fair to say? Um, we have uh, committed to an Afghan-led, Afghan-owned reconciliation process, but the terms of uh, of the kind of political settlement that you're talking about would have to be something that is led by the Afghans. That is not for that is not for us to uh, determine and not to determine in advance. And 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 I know I was stepping in and out, and I greatly apologize for that. Uh, 
my understanding is a statement was made that at present they're not exhibiting the characteristics that would be appropriate for them to be a part of that. Is that correct? I believe my, my colleague, um, Larry Sampler, made that, um, uh, made that comment with which I would uh, uh, fully agree. Uh, the point was, I think, that uh, the Taliban does seek a degree of international legitimacy, and this may be one of the reasons that they are, um, uh, have been willing to come uh, to the table, at least at Murray in, uh, in July of last year. Um, but uh, they have a long way to go before they would in any way be considered legitimate, you know, legitimate. And I think for us, we have been careful not to establish preconditions for uh, negotiations, but we support the Afghan end conditions, uh, which are renunciation of violence, um, uh, acceptance of the Constitution, including its uh, provisions uh, related to uh, women and minorities, uh, and a complete break with international terrorism, especially al-Qaeda. Those are the end conditions of the negotiating process. And so that's the end state that, uh, that the Afghan government is looking towards. I think it's good that we haven't established preconditions ourselves. What would be, though, the characteristics the Taliban would need to exhibit to, from your standpoint, to be uh, a legitimate entity for the Afghan government to begin negotiations with? Well, it, it, I think we would not want to establish preconditions um, for uh, for the yeah, negotiation. Yeah, I, I mean, and just the, your the, observation would be. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think what is important is that at the end of the negotiating process, those three um, uh, outcomes are are guaranteed, and that is what we seek: a process that generates those those three outcomes. And, and do you think, based on what you know, the Taliban has the capacity to reject uh, terrorism and violence? Um, they have. Uh, it, it's it's always very difficult, and I'm always very cautious, sir, about. Um, what we think the Taliban is thinking. Uh, it's, a very, it's a very fraught subject. Um, it's one of the reasons that a negotiating process would help to bring some of this out. But there have been some indications in some of the statements that were issued in Mullah Omar's name, it turns out, we thought at the time they may have been issued by Mullah Omar, uh, that suggest some movement on some of these, on some of these issues. Mm -hmm. But whether that's actually something that they'd be prepared to can only be determined through a negotiating process. So a couple of more just brief questions. You know, we had a, uh, a decent meeting with the Prime Minister of Pakistan and their military leadership. Um, you know, they gave us strongly worded statements about uh, the ISI's involvement and how 1,000% uh, were committed to um, dealing with uh, um, the Taliban, dealing with other groups that are housed in the FADA region and certainly ensuring that they did everything they could to make sure that Afghanistan was stabilized. On the other hand, I, I get the strong sense that's maybe not 100% accurate. They're watching what is happening on the ground. Uh, they want to have the proper relationship, if you will, with the, the ultimate uh, leadership group that exists in Afghanistan. And what they're seeing right now is situation where they're not sure what that outcome is going to be. My sense is that instead of them actually carrying out what they said here in our presence, 
that they are hedging their bets and they're they're trying to calculate, if you will, what Afghanistan is going to be over time. Right now, we have 9,800 troops ourselves in Afghanistan. There's been a sort of an arbitrary date of numbers of troops that will be there uh, over the course of this next year, I think dropping down to about 5,000. But it seems to me that we've got our hands full as is, that it's incredibly difficult for us to, to keep violence down and stability in place at present. Um, and I'm just, uh, just out of curiosity, does that raise questions to you as to, to when we need to be deciding ultimately what our security force uh, totals are going to be in Afghanistan? Um, it, if I could start, um, Senator, with the, um, the first piece on, on Pakistan. I mean, first of all, Pakistan has um, moved in a significant way on its own terrorism threat. Um, it has largely cleaned out. Uh, North Waziristan agency, something we had uh, long, long desired. It's reestablished control over most of North Waziristan. Um, and I think there is increasingly a recognition on the part of the government of Pakistan that um, there is significant bleed over between uh, the Pakistani Taliban and the Afghan Taliban. Um, and uh, that this is one of the motivations for their desire to um, you know, uh, uh, it, that it is no longer so simple for them as it may have been in the past, uh, even if they, uh, in principle, agree uh, to distinguish between um, uh, good and, um, and bad Taliban. The other important point is I think that they recognize uh, the outreach that President Ghani has made uh, to Pakistan um, and recognize that this is... Um, uh, a historic opportunity, um, and they would like to uh, seize on that. That's why we think that there is some one of you know among several reasons that there is a possibility uh, for moving forward on a reconciliation process now, because there's a greater degree of alignment on these issues between Afghanistan and Pakistan than there has been for some time in the past. Well, what about the second part of the question? Um, well, the second part, sir, the, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the president's decision is to uh, go to um, the um, uh, 5,500 troops after the end of uh, 2016, and I think it will be, um, uh, it will be for the next uh, administration to determine what uh, troop levels it uh, wants to support. And, and I don't want, I have no desire, I, I respect you. I think you and I may have traveled together to the Waziristans, if I remember correctly. We, we did, sir. So I, I don't want to in any way try to create uh, a divergence between you and the administration. But just just say at present, I mean, things could change, certainly between now and the end of the year. Our security forces uh, have their hands full in working with the Afghan military to try to create a secure environment, is that correct? Um, they yes, they have a they have a challenging assignment. But uh, I have talked to my uh, colleague and friend, uh, General Campbell, uh, and he's uh, confident uh, that he has what he needs at the moment. At the moment, yeah. Well, listen, I I certainly appreciate your service. I appreciated your candor yesterday in our office. I appreciate. Uh, service you've provided in multiple uh, settings, and um, certainly y'all have been helpful to us today. And I, I do think that uh, it would be fair to say, based on the entirety of yesterday, today, and just other interactions we have, we should all be very 
concerned about outcomes in Afghanistan and understand that uh, uh, tremendous diligence and effort is still necessary uh, and leadership on their part uh, to cause a successful outcome to occur. Would you agree? I think we all face a lot of challenges, sir. Absolutely. Thank you both. Appreciate it. We'll now ask the second panel uh, to take their place. Okay. We thank uh, all of you for being here. Our first witness today will be the former U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan, James Cunningham, someone we all know well. Now a senior fellow um, at the Khalilazad Chair on Afghanistan at the South Asia Center of the Atlantic Council. We thank you for being here. The second witness will be former Afghan Minister, Mr. Ali Jalali. Thank you so much for being here. We all know you also. Now distinguished professor at the Near East and South Asia Center for Strategic Studies at the National Defense University. Our third witness will be Jody Vittori, a senior policy advisor at the Global Witness, at Global Witness, who has also served in the U.S. military in Afghanistan. We thank you for that service. And, is count and in countering corruption in the defense and security sector, which I know there is a big job. Uh, so we thank you all for being here. We think this is a very distinguished panel. If you could keep your comments to around five minutes, uh, without objection, your written testimony will be entered into the record. And why don't we, if we could, go on the order of introduction, starting with you, Ambassador Cunningham. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Good to see you again. Senator Cardin, members of the committee, I'm honored to testify today on U.S. strategy in Afghanistan, and I appreciate this opportunity to address why continued U.S. engagement in Afghanistan is so important, and to place our efforts there in the context of the challenge we face from the extreme distorted Islamic ideology which threatens our, system, our citizens, our values, and our way of life. Rather than submit a statement for the record, I would refer the committee to the recent Atlantic Council paper on Afghanistan and U.S. security, of which I was the principal author co-signed by 28 former senior U.S. government officials of both parties and prominent policy experts, and with Senators McCain and Reid as honorary co-sponsors, that is, Jack Reid. The, the paper registers bipartisan agreement that Afghanistan matters to America's security, has a way forward to success despite all the challenges, merits the continued U.S. engagement required to protect American interests, and should be seen in the context of the broader terrorist threat. Inter alia, we argued to maintain U.S. and coalition military forces and intelligence assets at close to current levels and to leave options open for the next American president. 2014 and 2015 were years of great political security and economic transition and uncertainty for Afghanistan. 
with clarity about long-term U.S. engagement, there is now the opportunity to turn that around. I applaud President Obama's decision to maintain the U.S. military presence in Afghanistan through 2016 and beyond. This is a critically important strategic indicator of U.S. commitment to Afghanistan's security and success. It provides clarity for Afghans, the Taliban, and the region that there will be a significant U.S. military role in the future with no deadline. I wish such clarity had been provided several years ago. It is critical to the confidence of Afghans that they can succeed and to demonstrating to the Taliban that they cannot. Clarity that the Afghan project will not fail, that Afghanistan will not collapse under Taliban pressure and terror will be crucial to the prospects for Afghan confidence, continued success, and ultimately for peace. Preserving that clarity is in fact the priority strategic goal. It must be clear that there is no space in Afghanistan for Al-Qaeda and Daesh to flourish, nor a place for the Taliban absent a political settlement. With today's increased levels of violence and the evolution of new threats, the administration should revisit whether the U.S. security strategy formulated several years ago is adequate to today's task. They are doing, the Afghan security forces are doing the fighting. They will continue to improve. Any further reduction in international forces must be commensurate with Af ANSF capabilities, and critical gaps in close air support, intelligence, and logistics must continue to close and not widen. The development of Af Afghanistan's own air capabilities, including the sustainment of their own helicopters, must be a priority. In this new context of U U clarity of U.S. commitment, we should explore a genuine regional effort to strengthen Afghanistan and promote peace. There were hopeful signs, as we heard, heard earlier at last week's meeting at the Heart of Asia process, process in Islamabad. And after the setbacks of last summer, President Ghani deserves credit for renewing the effort to open doors with Pakistan. The test will be whether Pakistan takes concrete actions not only to support reconciliation, but to reduce the ability of the Taliban and the Haqqani network to plan and launch operations from Pakistan, which greatly diminishes the prospects for real negotiations. The crucial tasks ahead for Afghanistan are exceedingly difficult. Improving security, creating conditions for peace, building the economy, strengthening government, forging Afghan political unity. For Afghanistan to succeed, two mutually reinforcing processes must be continued. First, it must be clear that adequate levels of international military, financial, and political support are available so that Afghanistan, Afghans will have the time to build on progress made and con to continue to take responsibility for their own affairs. Second, the national unity government needs to perform and demonstrate achievement to the Afghan people and the international community. The government has ad advanced an ambitious reform program and is struggling to implement it. The new Jobs for Peace program is an effort with security and economic implications to provide work as the economy develops. The challenges are considerable, but Afghanistan's political class must understand that the opportunity today afforded Afghanistan is unique and must not be squandered if Afghanistan is to be seen as worthy of continued international support. The challenge to our security in Afghanistan is one part of the long-term threat much of the world, not just the West, faces from terrorism rooted in violent extremism, recently highlighted by attacks in Egypt, Turkey, Lebanon, Paris, California, Mali, and elsewhere. The goal remains to prevent and to help Afghans prevent Afghanistan from becoming again a platform for those who threaten us. 
we have tended to dismiss the Daesh presence in Afghanistan as rebranded Taliban, as if that made it less dangerous. We have seen in Libya that such indigenous affiliates eventually control ground and connect with the center in Syria. In Afghanistan, we have a strategy that can work with a willing Islamic partner in the fight against terror. With the clarity of international commitment, Afghanistan can increasingly become a contributor to security. We must not now lose sight of Afghanistan as we did before, after the expulsion, but not the defeat of the Taliban. Our efforts there must be long-term and in concert with the need for the United States to help develop and implement a generational strategy to defend our people and values while draining the life from the distorted version of Islam that animates Daesh, Al-Qaeda, and others. Experience teaches that ideology cannot be defeated militarily, although military force must be an instrument. The defeat of violent Islamic extremism can ultimately come only from within the Islamic world, which must play a leading role as part of a multilateral, multifaceted effort. This is the context in which our future work in Afghanistan and the region must be seen. The success of Afghanistan is part of this larger struggle, which the civilized world, including more than 1.5 billion peace-loving Muslims, must win. The, in the instruments we have used in the past, our strategies for dealing with state-to-state -state conflict, our leadership patterns, the discourse with our publics, have not kept pace fully with the terrorist threats as they are evolving today and will exist tomorrow. In short, the United States and its partners have much serious work to do, and Afghanistan must be part of that effort. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. I, I want to apologize to all of you. We have a, an Omni bill that was just produced last night about 12 o'clock, and today there are still uh, discussions that are underway. And as we step in and out, it's not out of lack of interest on this topic. Uh, we're going to be out of here this week with a massive piece of legislation uh, that has passed, and we apologize for attending to that, which, by the way, uh, parts of affect Afghanistan, too. Yeah, I thought it was it was all finished. If I knew it was still open, I'd be out there also. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's a secret we're keeping. Uh, Mr. Jalali, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Honorable Chairman Corker, uh, Ranking uh, Member, Honorable Members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Thank you for inviting me to offer my evaluation of the administration's strategy on Afghanistan. The assessment I offer today is based entirely on my own views and analysis. Mr. Chairman, on January 1st, 2015, after the coalition officially concluded combat mission in Afghanistan, the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces, in spite of specific capability gaps, independently faced the upsurge of insurgency in 2015, and to large extent held its own, albeit with a higher casualty rate. Given the complex political and security context of the situation in and around Afghanistan, including the threat of the emerging Daesh, uh, uh, we are, it, it, uh, the Afghan National Defense uh, and Security Forces are expected to face continued security threats and violence, at least in the immediate future. It is a force of immense capability to face ongoing security challenges while still constrained by capability gaps in certain key areas which have been covered by the U.S. forces in the past. The fast-paced numerical force generation of Afghanistan National Defense and Security Forces during the transition period left little time to develop certain capabilities, including the Air Force, intelligence, logistics, 
that takes longer time in elaborate uh, infrastructure. The presence of uh, U.S. forces and uh, NATO and President Obama's de decision to keep 5,500 troops in Afghanistan beyond 2017 will ensure continued assistance to build indigenous security capacity in Afghanistan to respond to the threats the country faces. Whether the presence of such a force would make a major difference is hard to determine, since there are other domestic and regional factors that affect the situation. However, the absence of the U.S. forces in Afghanistan would definitely have an adverse impact on regional stability. The presence of U.S. forces in Afghanistan sends a strong message to friends and foes that Afghanistan is not going to be abandoned and the United States is still committed to help Afghanistan. Having said this, the impact of the U.S. forces, along with some 4,000 NATO troops, which are expected to stay in Afghanistan, depends on their size, their mission, and their rules of engagement. Uh, the low ratio, uh, sorry, the current NATO resolute support mission focuses on training, advising, and assisting of Afghan forces at core and ministerial level through four regional train, advise, and assist commands located in the north, south, east, and west with the central hub in Kabul. The United States leads in two of these commands, plus uh, providing tactical advising to the Afghan Special Security Forces in the Afghan Air Force. The low uh, ratio to uh, force, uh, the, the ratio of force to region and uneven capabilities of different regional commands is causing capacity uh, shortfalls to help NDS or Afghan National Security Forces narrow their key capability gaps, particularly in aviation, intelligence, special forces, and logistics. Further, there are uncertainties in the rules of engagement. The NATO partners see their combat role indeed ended last year, even as they support the Afghan combat troops who often get engaged in fighting. Uh, the development of the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces cannot happen in a vacuum, but depends on the development and progress in other areas of institution building in Afghanistan, including the rule of law. There is a strong need for the Afghan unity government to take effective measures to fight corruption, nepotism, and political factionalization within the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces. The Afghan government, uh, faces an enormous challenges to forge political consensus, to implement reforms, to improve governance and ensure unified leadership. It should make extra effort to meet the competing demands of maintaining unity and governing effectively. To conclude, prospects for stability and peace in Afghanistan are influenced by three main factors, viability and effectiveness of the Afghan government. The capacity of Afghanistan national defense and security forces to degrade the Taliban power in cooperation from Pakistan through improved Afghan-Pakistan relations. The first two factors deny the Taliban hope to overthrow the Afghan government, changing their hedging mood and bringing them to the uh, negotiating table. While the third factor facilitates and speeds up 
reconciliation, and uh, reduction of violence in Afghanistan. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Uh, Dr. Rattori. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and honorable members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today and your continued interest in Afghanistan. As a civil society organization dedicated to ending the nexus between corruption and conflict, especially in the natural resource sector, Global Witness has worked in Afghanistan since 2011, traveling regularly to work in the country with our local civil society partners, the Afghan government, and international donors to build momentum for governance reforms. As one of the leading counter-corruption organizations operating there, Global Witness was honored this June to be invited, along with Transparency International and Integrity Watch Afghanistan, to meet with President Ashraf Ghani to discuss government reform. As the Afghan Accountability Act of 2015 makes clear, corruption remains an existential threat to the Afghan state. Much hope has been placed in the national unity government, and there have been some early counter-corruption victories. For example, President Ghani has set up a procurement board and personally reviews all contracts over $1 million. President Ghani, CEO Abdullah, and other senior members of the government have now declared their financial assets. But the view from the ground from civil society is that corruption continues to grow in response to political stagnation, rising insecurity, and economic decline. While the Afghan government has publicized important counter-corruption initiatives, there is a lack of strategy and institutionalization of reforms. Surveys show this year that over half of all Afghans reported paying a bribe, and 90% of Afghans said that corruption is a problem in their daily lives. Recent scandals have also hurt the perception of reform, most notably one involving senior government officials working with the perpetrator of the 2010 Kabul Bank scandal for a highly profitable public-private partnership on land which should have been already confiscated, and with money whose origins remain unclear. A cynical response to all this could be that the place is just too corrupt and to give up trying. Instead, Global Witness believes that, while anti-corruption efforts will take time, there are immediate me measures that can have a substantial impact on corruption and help Afghanistan on a more stable path. American leadership is especially needed in three broad areas. First, key aspects of countering corruption in Afghanistan are flagging, and without counter-corruption efforts, there will be stymied. One is the urgent need for the appointment of a permanent, confirmed attorney general, who is the only person, according to Afghan law, who can prosecute corruption. Also, while the Independent Joint Anti-Corruption Monitoring and Evaluation Committee, better known simply as the MEC, has had some issues, its dual-key approach of combining an equal number of Afghan and international members to monitor corruption reforms is an important asset, which will need strong political and financial support if they are to continue to challenge various corrupt interests. Second. Strategic thinking, reforms, and capacity building to fight economic crime and corruption have largely stagnated. In order to bring this agenda back on track, reforms made in the wake of the Kabul bank scandal and promised in the Tokyo Mutual Accountability Framework of 2012 should be aggressively pursued. The international community largely disengaged from capacity building and in overseeing a robust regulatory reform of the financial sector and the associated law enforcement after Kabul bank. But Afghanistan is going to effectively fight corruption investigate and prosecute terrorist-related financing and in impunity against corrupt actors, then significantly increased political engagement and assistance is essential. Concurrently, the national unity government needs to take on various ongoing piecemeal efforts and craft them into an effective strategy that links the goals of fighting corruption with the ways and means at their disposal, coordinating the various ministries and other bodies to work as one team in one fight and upon which donor assistance can be linked. 
Finally, Afghanistan needs to further build its legislative and regulatory framework to international transparency and accountability standards to create a secure environment where legitimate business can thrive. This includes committing and fully implementing the open contracting principles, the open government partnership, and the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. These would greatly improve transparency and accountability in key sectors of the economy and better enable oversight by civil society and parliament. President Ghani's establishment of a procurement board is a good start, but it's not enough. It is hard for Afghan or American businesses, for instance, to risk investing capital in Afghanistan not only due to insecurity, but also because its continued poor regulatory environment, an opaque procurement system, corruption in taxation and customs enforcement, and for American businesses, legitimate concerns with violating the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. One area where reforms in U.S. engagement are especially critical is in the extractive sector, where mining should be a pillar of the economy and for self-sufficiency is instead a source of corruption and conflict that contributes almost nothing to the Afghan budget, while at the same time it is the number two source of revenue for the Taliban after narcotics. Yet the Afghan government has not submitted crucial amendments to this law yet that could increase Afghan revenues and help start the process of wrestling it away from various violent and corrupt actors. There are no easy fixes in the extreme predatory levels of corruption in Afghanistan, but there are many tools available to the United States in this fight. Carefully placed aid conditionality, along with targeted funding and capacity building, are important. So too are kingpin and transnational organized crime designations, visa bans, asset freezes, and law enforcement investigations against the most difficult actors. But most importantly, the United States needs to make corruption and establishing good governance a priority on par with security and economic development. With aggressive action, the battle for Afghanistan is not yet lost. Thank you. Thank all three of you. We appreciate it. Um, um, we are privileged to have the opportunity to have people like you before us. And again, we thank you for your time and preparation and being here. Ambassador Cunningham, uh, you worked with uh, what I think would be, uh, uh, I think people would say you worked with one of the mo most difficult people ever uh, when you were working with President Karzai. Uh, we ended up with uh, uh, the Ghani government, which I think most people believe is a is, is a pretty good outcome for for Afghanistan, um, and I know there are numbers of things that he needs to put in place. Um, I know he's a technocrat, probably not quite as much of a politician as as uh, Karzai was, uh, but understands uh, things about good governance and corruption and those kinds of issues, but. At the same time, it's going to be very difficult for him to, to be successful, is it not, unless uh, there's a secure environment there. I mean, I think at the end of the day, that's the number one thing that uh, will inhibit his ability to be successful. I'd like for you to speak to that. But also, are there additional diplomatic and or other tools that you think we as a nation at current, uh, in current times are not utilizing properly? Um, thank you for the question, Senator. I think security really is at the, at the base of everything that, uh, that Afghans want to accomplish. And uh, the huge amount of uncertainty over the last couple of years uh, generated by Karzai's refusal to sign the bilateral security agreement, which, which we negotiated, China negotiated, um, the, the uncertainty around the political process, the uncertainty about what would happen with American troops and the American troop presence, uh, given the president's 
uh, announced deadline of withdrawal by the end of 2016, created a, a massive amount of uncertainty and loss of confidence in the Afghan system that they're only now beginning to recover from. And that's why I, I said in my statement that, that the President's decision to extend the troop presence through 2016 without a deadline is the first time in, in, year, in many years that there has been a degree of certainty that, that the United States will actually be present in a significant way militarily to continue to support the Afghan security forces. That's an incredibly important signal to Afghans and to the region that we need diplomatically with our partners to find a way to, to magnify and to leverage to affect strategic calculations in our, with, among our adversaries strategic calculations in the region about hedging activity and which way the future will go, and to give confidence to the Afghans and the security forces that they can, they can succeed and that we and our partners will be, the, be there to help them up when those, in times when they fall short. So I think there, there, this is now a new opportunity for all of us to, to move forward and to try to counteract, I guess is the best word, uh, the, the kind of a report that you and your committee members were so concerned uh, about hearing from the intelligence community the other day. Mr. Jalali, um, I mean, I don't, I don't know what numbers are public and what numbers are not public, and so, like Senator Kane, I want to be very careful, but uh, there is, at a minimum, a, a massive turnover rate in the military. Um, I, I don't even want to speak uh, to what the officials' numbers are, but they were very large at a minimum. Um, I know that you have um, discussed the need for us to, to be there uh, under this same arrangement for five years. Is that correct in your written testimony? Could you talk just a little bit about the state? I, I mean, I, I, have, I think all of us have, whenever we go to Afghanistan, we're taken to where the Afghan military is being trained and we're seeing the maneuvers they're going through and um, while we appreciate the fact that uh, people in Afghanistan are good fighters, we, it's, it's hard to detect a real commitment and professionalism in that regard. And I just wonder if you could speak to the turnover rate and, turn, and also the things we need to do um, over the next five years to, to ensure that uh, Ghani is able to be successful and or his successor. Uh, thank you, Senator, for the uh, question. Uh, there are a number of uh, factors that affect this uh, situation, and the five years is just a kind of approximate number. Yeah. What uh, we are talking about five years is also we get a cue from uh, what uh, the uh, recent NATO discussions and NATO meetings actually uh, w w revealed that uh, uh, NATO would like to uh, continue the, 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 the level of support that will uh, uh, keep about 12,000 troops in Afghanistan for the next five years, which I, I think probably it will be uh, discussed during the uh, NATO summit uh, in Warsaw in July. But what I am talking about five years is uh, because I, I see that, that the gaps in the capability of Afghan national uh, security forces, they fight well, but because of the, uh, the lack of capabilities, they are uh, the, uh, unable to uh, have the kind of agility that they need 
in order to respond to the uh, uh, insurgents' attacks everywhere. Now, the, in order to uh, uh, cover the uh, uh, very difficult areas in the, in the country, most of the Afghan national security forces are based in, in a fixed basis. And then the Taliban have the, uh, the, the uh, ability to choose the time and space to concentrate against fixed targets in Afghan national security forces. The low ratio of uh, um, uh, force to space can be uh, you know, um, compensated by uh, technological uh, force multipliers. That's the air force, that's the mobility, that's the, air, that, that's the firepower, uh, and also logistics. Therefore, I said in, 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 it will take a long time for Afghan national uh, air force to develop and also the, 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 uh, the logistic system, the intelligence, and the special forces operations. Until that uh, happens, Afghanistan will be handicapped by uh, being a kind of a mostly a static force, not have the agility to respond quickly to the Taliban. Uh, in Kunduz and Helmand, the, uh, it was the, the, the airstrikes by the United States Air Force that helped Afghan government forces to deny uh, Taliban to get control of, of many districts or to expel Taliban from the Kunduz city. Just, I know my time is up, and I obviously want to be courteous to the other members. I, what is it, though, culturally, what's happening within the Afghan military where we have such a high percentage of people that leave each year uh, that then calls us, again, to have to, to keep the numbers that we have in mind? We have a massive amount of training that we have each year. Therefore, you, you lack the experience, if you will, on the ground that otherwise would be, be the case. That is a problem, uh, Senator. Uh, the, uh, nobody knows the actual numbers of Afghan national security forces. On the paper, we have 195,000 army and uh, 157,000 of police. However, the, uh, according to the information I have, I got from Afghan and also international uh, sources in, in, in November, about 90% of the, the forces are not on duty. Further, 90% of the forces? 90% are present, okay. between 90 and 91%, which means in, in, in November, the number of Afghan National uh, Army were seven, about 75,000. So it was 25,000 less than the authorized uh, you know, uh, level. Uh, on the other hand, some of the, uh, the troops are, uh, are deployed in difficult topographical areas. And they are there, and they cannot be moved easily from one area to concentrate troops against the concentration of Taliban. So then you have the, uh, uh, many of the forces, the troops are, uh, are exhausted, and they have little time to, to, to go on leave. And uh, plus, some are, uh, when they go on leave, their families are threatened by the Taliban not to go back to this route. So it is, the attrition rate is about 5,000 a month. Uh, but at the same time, the number of volunteers who come far exceeds the number of, of, the, of the, uh, the people who leave the army. So there is no lack of volunteers. However, the technicalities make it difficult to have the full uh, level of the forces at the same time. 
Well, thank you, Dr. Vittori. I, I know others will ask you questions, I'm sure, about corruption. We know that's been a massive, uh, massive issue in the country, and obviously it cannot go forward productively without dealing with that. Uh, thank you for being here, Senator Cardin. That's what I'm going to ask about. Thank you, Dr. Vittori. First of all, all three of you, thank you very much. I, I agree with the chairman. I found your, your written testimony and your presentations here to be very, very helpful for us to truly understand the challenges that we have in Afghanistan. So I think today's hearing has been very helpful, both panels. Uh, I, I want to try to drill down for all three as to what the United States can do in its policy in order to try to advance the issues that you've raised in your individual presentations. And Dr. Pretori, I tell you, I, I found your statement uh, to be extremely helpful in a roadmap to what Afghanistan needs to do to fight corruption. And you were pretty specific as to ways that we could advance that through the tools we have available in, in our toolkit. Uh, could you give me perhaps your first or second or third priorities as to where you would like to see the United States concentrate for change in Afghanistan to fight corruption? Thank you, Senator. I appreciate that. Um, as we've put it in our written testimony for Global Witness, uh, our, our first immediate priority is that there really needs to be an attorney general mm -hmm. appointed, a permanent attorney general. The current acting attorney general has been there for That's years. That's your top priority? For the, the, the extremely short term, which actually President Ghani, I, think, I believe, has promised in his, the senior officials meeting to have by the end of this month. Um, because we have an acting attorney general right now who has been there since the Karzai administration, and the attorney general is the only government official ultimately who can prosecute corruption. It's, it, we would obviously strongly urge that this be a very high quality individual with a very strong mandate to go after corruption, after the difficulties of the previous administration. But overall, our, we would say in the long term that whereas the United States seems to primarily prioritize security, hoping that they could catch up on governance later, what we find in everything from think tank studies to academic studies to experience on the ground is that governance and security have to be operated concurrently and have to be prioritized concurrently. And I think the questioning from the previous panel has, has demonstrated that. When you look in issues like Kunduz with the role, for example, of arming warlords for the last uh, decade or so there, you have warlords who had a, who have been, um, think tanks have noted that these warlords in particular made a lot of grievances with the population due to human rights issues. Um, and in the end, frankly, when you're arming warlords and other illicit actors that are not strongly within the command and control of the government, they're acting out for themselves. They act on behalf of themselves. If they need to switch sides, retreat, or whatever, because it's best for them, regardless of whether it's best for the good of the nation, they will do so. And we saw that with two key warlords in particular, according to New York Times and other reports, in Kunduz itself, and we've seen it in other locations. We also see it in issues with the Afghan National Security Forces themselves and the police. If the police are considered highly predatory in a particular location, if their level of unofficial taxation, extortion, is higher than, for example, the Taliban, there are cases where it could actually make rational sense for individuals to go to the side of the Taliban. And the grievances that come with that as well can push people to the side of the Taliban. Take, for example, corruption in land. This is one of the major reasons that has been assessed that for local violence in areas, but also when people lose their land, grievance re when there's no grievance resolution mechanisms that can be used legally, people will naturally go to the other side if that's, that's an, 
a side that promises to help them get their land back, settle their grievances, perhaps provide a cleaner level of, of grievance resolution, provide a better level of judicial services. So you, you cannot get ahead in the security environment if the corruption environment is undermining every set of security gains you make. Uh, I think that's very helpful. I, I agree with your statement, and uh, I think you do give us a roadmap for how we need to try to develop the U.S. role in Afghanistan and fighting corruption because it's very much related to the security of that country. No question, economic future of the country and everything else. Ambassador Cunningham, um, you really, I think, in your statement, put your finger on the principal challenge with Pakistan as it relates to Afghanistan. And I'm quoting from your testimony, the test will be whether Pakistan takes concrete actions not only to support reconciliation, but to reduce the ability of the Taliban and the Akhani network to plan and launch operations from Pakistan, which greatly diminish the prospects for real negotiations. To, put, to understate it, we have a complicated relationship with Pakistan. What can the United States do in its bilateral with Pakistan to further the prospects for reconciliation and peace in Afghanistan? Well, Senator, congratulations for putting your finger on exactly the most vexing question that, uh, that com immediately comes to the fore when you're talking about how to, how to bring an end to the conflict. Um, and this is something that now that I'm out of government that I want to use my current position with the Atlantic Council to see if we can develop some fresh thinking uh, about. As somebody who sat in Kabul for three and a half years, knowing that every day that I was there, somebody from Pakistan uh, was trying to kill the people that I was responsible for, I have a certain strong feeling about, about that dynamic. Um, I think the levers that we have tried to use, leverage and incentives that we've tried to use, have, have as Ambassador Olson said in his remarks, I think there has been a conceptual shift uh, among Pakistan's leaders. There's certainly been a shift in the rhetoric over the last couple years. And the, the statements made in Islamabad at the Heart of Asia meeting do open up some new perspectives, perhaps. The challenge is to find a way to change the strategic calculations of not just the, the Taliban and the Khanis themselves to get them push towards a negotiation, at least the Taliban, many people think the Haqqanis are not reconcilable. But, but how to edge what you might politely call hedging behavior on the part of Pakistan, who's, who in their defense, they have suffered a lot in their own fight against terrorism. They don't have very much confidence in developments in Afghanistan, as I understand it. And they too have had long had, had questions about what the United States would ultimately do in Afghanistan. We need to resolve those issues uh, in our own interest and uh, in our own interest in dealing with the threat of terrorism from that part of the world and then use the clarity about our intent and purpose and that of our partners to affect calculations that up to now have not, that have prevented the opening of the doors that need to open to have a real discussion about what the future of that region is look, looks like and a future that benefits Pakistan as well as Afghanistan.
Well, I look forward to your active engagement as a private citizen on this issue because we need uh, to figure this out. I mean, it is so challenging. Um, some of our private discussions are so much different than the public discussions and in the realities, unless we have a constructive role by Pakistan here, it's going to be very difficult to see the reconciliation move forward. So I, I appreciate your, com your comments on that. And Mr. Jalali, I also appreciate you being here. Uh, I, I'm just going to uh, acknowledge that your statement that the key factor in improving prospects for sustained political, economic, and security cooperation with the National Unity Government is to implement the promised structural, electoral, and functional reforms with the Afghan state. I think that's absolutely essential. It deals also with Dr. Batari's comments and, and Ambassador Cunningham's. It really is whether we can put a confidence, a confidence in, in the reforms in Afghanistan that could really bring in all sectors of Afghanistan for security and economic prosperity. So I thank all three of you again for your testimony, and I can assure you it's had an impact on our committee. Thank you. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you to the witnesses. Um, I have a lot of questions, but I'm just going to ask one that, that intrigues me. Um, the administration strategy in Afghanistan is the title. One key element of the administration strategy was successful elections at, at the end of the Karzai tenure. There were efforts to destabilize those elections that were generally unsuccessful, so that was a positive. But then the election led to a result that was a potential disastrous stalemate. The U.S. played an important role, the administration played an important role in f helping to broker the formation of the partnership between uh, President Ghani and CEO Abdullah. Uh, the, 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 the title chosen was a national unity government, which sets a pretty high standard. And it seems to me that virtually all the issues we're talking about today, whether it's the security issues or whether it's anti-corruption activity or whether it's right relationship vis-a-vis -vis Pakistan, all these depend upon is the national unity government really a national unity government. So I would just like each of you to offer from your own perspectives a year plus into this, um, how cohesive uh, and professional is the working relationship between Ghani and Abdullah um, and, and their constituents? So, and, and if you want to share positives and negatives or positives or work that remains to be done, I, I'm really interested in that dynamic a year plus in. Thank you, um, Senator. This is a very important uh, question, which is being discussed, I think, daily in Afghanistan, too. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, campaign for the uh, presidential elections uh, turned into a kind of a campaign that was not uh, aimed as making a difference, but it was aimed at winning the elections. This way, that the two camps brought together in odd. We don't. We don't know anything about that kind of election. In the yeah, I was going <laughs> to say they've uh, learned well. So an uh, odd assortment of different groups with different agendas, different interests, different visions. When that uh, the two camps actually finally uh, agreed to form this national unity government, then that problem was there. Now, the uh, two major challenges 
that was faced this, this government from day one was how to maintain unity, keep everybody happy, but at the same time be effective in governments. I think if, if the, the government failed to, to, to have that balance. Many uh, members of the two uh, leaders, I mean supporters of the two leaders, have their own interests. This affects, this actually reflects in appointments of people who are considered the allies of different elements of these two groups. That actually undermines the professionalism of the armed forces, and also it stalls the appointment of people to key positions. I think that the previous panel, it was said that the Minister of Petroleum and Mining said they cannot fill 290 positions there. It does not mean that they are not qualified people because the two leaders should agree, and not the two leaders, but also their also allies should agree on, on these positions. That makes this government unfunctional in many areas. Second, the government, all, uh, when the two leaders, uh, Dr. Abdullah and uh, Dr. Ashani, both are my good friends, they have very good relations with each other. But they have to listen to their uh, other allies. They are influenced by their other allies. Therefore, they, uh, the, uh, they, have the, uh, they, they, they share the authority to appoint people. And uh, this makes appointment very, very uh, you know, slow. On the other hand, this also brings another problem. The problem is instead of working through institutions, empowering institutions, individuals have become empowered. That also undermines the effectiveness of the government. So therefore, I think the real solution is what is in the deal. It says at the end of the two years, a lawyer should be called in order to legalize this, this system, in order to, to uh, end this dumovarate in the government. If, if Dr. Abdullah is there is, uh, the, 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 with the uh, review of the constitution, it becomes a prime minister, then he will be prime minister. Then he will work for the president. Now, president and prime minister, or the uh, CEO, who is appointed by a decree of the president, he has the same power, equal uh, 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 power, of uh, authority with it. And the third, while the president has the, uh, the constitutional legitimacy, it has its power authority from the constitution. Dr. Ablod gets it from the decree of the president, however, he does not have that power that is for constitutionally. Therefore, he plays his political card. Therefore, we see an opposition within the government. Mr. Cunningham, you are such an important part of a really successful negotiation. I think it was a, a huge coup that the, your role, Secretary Kerry's role, and others in trying to promote the formation of the unity government to get over the electoral impasse. Your sense of it a year in, I'm, I'm quite interested in, and, and Mr. Jalali, thank you for your, your thoughts. I really appreciate that. I'll have to decide in due course whether this is something I want to be remembered for or not. Um, let me say, uh, by way of context first, nobody ever thought this was going to be easy, genuinely. It was very clear from the beginning this, this was a difficult enterprise. Both. 
Dr. Ghani and Dr. Abdullah genuinely believe that he, each of them genuinely believe that he won the election. And so did their followers. And so uh, as we we're even starting to begin the discussion, there was already a huge gap, each side feeling that it, it had won the election, therefore why was it being asked to enter into a discussion with the other side about what the, what the government uh, would be like. And this was also in the context of lack of clarity about what the outcome of the elections um, would, would eventually prove to be. So it was, it was a very fraught political exercise and anybody who's been involved in politics, if you just put yourself in their place for one second, you realize how difficult this was. Even in countries that have experience in creating coalition arrangements in governing, find it difficult to come to agreement and to then implement government. And there's no experience in doing this in Afghanistan at all. So it's no surprise that they're struggling. Um, the relationship, I agree with um, Mr. Jalali, Minister Jalali, the relationship with the, between the two men is pretty good. They each understand what's at stake. And to their credit, they both took an incredibly responsible and statesmanlike decision to put, us, put aside what their personal preference would be and to focus on the good of the country. The problem is keeping that focus is incredibly difficult and it's much more difficult for the people around them as they go through the difficult dynamics of actually governing, making decisions, making appointments, and all the rest of it. Um, Everybody's disappointed they haven't made more progress, in, including both of them, I know, from speaking to them. Uh, they remain committed to trying to make this work because they believe, as I do, and as I still do, that there is no better alternative for Afghanistan than making this work, even if it's painfully difficult. The alternatives to forming the national unity government or an alternative now to, to it in some form uh, can, can never create the, sign, the kind of, even if it's only formal unity, that the country requires. And indeed, our discussion about the need for unity after the elections began more than a year before the elections actually, actually took place because Afghanistan's political classes, as I was, were, they were concerned about the prospect of the elections leading to a breakup in the political fabric and eventually a breakup uh, in the country. So we talked, we began a discussion long before the elections about the need not to produce an outcome that would split the North and the South and Pashtuns and Tajiks and Shia and, and Sunnis. Afghanistan has existed at a, as a country for many centuries it, and Afghans have seen what happens when that cultural and political consensus spins apart as it did during the Civil War and they've looked into the abyss. Uh, that's the thing that gives me optimism that this will continue to work because the alternatives are dangerous for them and ultimately dangerous for us. Mr. Chair, I'm over time, but could I ask Dr. Vittori sure. just to address it, please? Thanks. <clears throat> Thank you, Senator. Uh, as has already been mentioned, both candidates ran on a strong anti-corruption platform. And so in theory, this should be a very, very transformative government, very broad-based. If they're both sincere about corruption, they should be able to transform the government significantly. But governments are more than just two individuals. And there are a number of individuals of varying quality beneath the executive office that 
have to be contended with and significant patronage networks that still remain within the government that has to be worked with, to be frank. And so while there is no poll data or other academic data, we do continue to hear concerns from the field that because of the pre-existing patronage networks that have made the government so difficult to work with, um, that now there could be two sets of parties to pay off instead of one, which would be an indicator of why we do see the statistical analysis of corruption has grown and not shrunk since between 2014 and 2015, according to the Asia Foundation survey. It, but it also speaks to the importance of institutionalizing reforms, putting in good legislative laws and so forth, which are necessary but not sufficient in the government, and professionalizing a civil service away from individuals and more to a professionalized civil service organization to begin to break those patronage networks, to pull it from the individual and towards a professionalized government that can work for the good of the country versus the good of individual strong men and other interests. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. The, you've uh, answered it from different directions, but there's some consistent themes among the three answers, and I appreciate your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chair. We're about at that time, but uh, I just want to follow up a little bit on that. I, I know when we go into a culture um, and we want to make things happen quickly, um, we obviously are dealing with the culture where they are at that moment. Um, we hope to have things put in place over time that cause uh, corruption and other kind of things to dissipate and go away. But when we begin, we're dealing with the culture as it is. And I'm just wondering if there's any lessons learned um, that you might be willing to share with us. Um, do we, when we enter a country like this on the front end, sometimes send mixed signals relative to our actions, trying to generate immediate outcomes and our rhetoric as to uh, what we want to see them do over time. That's you, doctor. Uh, if I may wear my professor hat in this case, one of the issues we will deal with when we go into countries, we never go into a country that's in a good situation. By definition, we don't go into places that are strong and stable and so forth. We're, if we're going in with the 82nd Airborne, we're going in because the situation's already a problem. <clears throat> And that means that unfortunately corruption, statistically speaking, is probably already very high. The state has been very fragile. And most likely they've been through a number of cycles of warfare in these countries. And so unfortunately there will be cases where you essentially have to rent your friends when you first go in to get access because of the individuals that can give you your airfields, your intelligence and so forth. That involves suitcases of cash. But if you're still going through 10 years, 15 years into a warfare where you're still handing suitcases of cash to try to rent your friends, mission success is going to be extremely difficult to get to at that point. I think the biggest lesson we're learning in all of these operations in any of the countries that we've dealt with, whether it, we're looking at Iraq or whether we're looking at Afghanistan, is when we first go into the country, everybody wonders what the new rules of the game are going to be. Everything's up in flux. Will the United States be putting in strong institutions? Will NATO be putting in strong institutions? Will there be prosecutions for previous war crimes? Will there be accountability put in, transparency put in? What can individuals get away with? And we saw that in Afghanistan as well. And it's one of those situations where an ounce of prevention is really worth a pound of cure. Putting in those issues early on, right away, establishing good governance along with security is much easier in the early stages where everybody's waiting to see what's going to happen than waiting until the entrenched interests have gotten in there 
with their money and their militias and so forth and trying to weed it out later. Now you have a, gener a problem where weeding out corruption is probably generational at that point when you've gotten that far. So I'd say the lessons learned from Afghanistan we should be seeing applied to, say, places like Ukraine. Where is that oversight and accountability? They have a tremendous corruption issue. How do we deal with uh, oil politics, pipeline politics, and the resource curse sorts of issues that can face Ukraine? How have we insulated the Ministry of Defense and Ministry of Interior there against corruption and ensuring, for example, that promotions are merit-based, assuring that logistics networks are sound, that uh, quartermaster general groups and so forth aren't diverting assets from, that should be going to Ukrainian troops and instead be putting it, for example, on the black market or even sold potentially to enemies. If, if that does occur, there's no information I know of that that occurs. This, when we first go into locations, whether it's you know, diplomatically or militarily, how do we start that process early on and, and shape the battle space, if you will, so that the rules of the game come out with a rule of law, governance, as a solid military and the democratic reforms we would like? Thank you. Well, you gave the answer that I, I thought you would give. I, I, uh, when we go in, we go into a crisis mode. We want things to happen quickly. And I think, again, we establish on the front end um, that we're, and I understand this may be out of necessity, but we start building on the existing culture of corruption and uh, uh, especially when you're dealing with uh, people like we've had in leadership there up until recent times, um, it just perpetuates that. And, uh, you know, we've heard the, you know, it's almost, a, I guess, a joke. You know, we hear the stories of our guys going in to meet with a former leader there about corruption, and then right behind them would be somebody coming in with, with suitcases, as you're talking about. So uh, um, I think that's a real challenge for us. And on that note, moving back to the ambassador, since you're on the private sector side now and utilizing your experiences and uh, around the world to help look at things in a new way, just briefly at 30,000 feet, uh, do you have any advice for those of us who still are here on the inside um, as it relates to going into countries like Afghanistan, like Iraq, uh, and, you know, potentially portions of Syria, if you will, any advice to us as we look at uh, trying to reconfigure those, if you will, um, in our own image? First of all, let me say how much I appreciate your continued interest, your personal continued interest in this, and I know you have a lot of other business pending. Um, I think one of the lessons of Afghanistan, I wasn't directly involved in Iraq, I was indirectly involved through my work at the United Nations, but I think one of the lessons in, in both places actually is that we, uh, we tend to overestimate our reach and our capabilities. Uh, it's it's ex exceedingly difficult to, to refashion uh, or repair another another culture to repair a broken state, especially in a situation where you have imperfect knowledge of how it operates, how the culture operates. Uh, you have people cycling out uh, after one-year tours. Um, it's a, it's a it's I just say it's difficult. And when I got to Afghanistan in 
uh, the summer of 2011. It was the, the peak of the military surge, which was actually already starting to turn around, but I, I was instructed to complete the civilian surge, which we hadn't quite topped out at, which we never did, because as soon as I got there, I realized that we needed to reverse course along with the military. But when I got there, there was Just to refresh our memory, that, those time spans, the years were? Uh, 2000, I got there this in the summer of 2011. And when I got there, we were still trying to, we Americans and our partners, out of the best of motives, were still trying to fix every broken window in the country. And that, that generated that impulse and the, and the amount of money that was, it was available and which people were trying to manage and doing so in very good faith, created a whole bunch of secondary and, and third level effects that I don't think we understood very well. Damaging to their society. And damaging to their, did a lot of good. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, none of, none of the statistics and, and benefits that the other panelists cited would have happened without that effort. But I, I guess I'd say that one, one lesson learned is that we need to be, first of all, I hope we're not gonna be doing that sort of thing in the future. Uh, but to the extent we are, I think we need to learn uh, lessons a little bit about the limits of our capabilities to actually accomplish the, the very good things that we might want to accomplish under, uh, under those kinds of circumstances. And we certainly need to do a good job of learning what worked and what didn't work in Afghanistan. Well, listen, y'all have been um, very, very helpful. We thank you for the service you've provided our nation and the service you're providing now on the outside and hopefully you'll be back up to help us again in the future. Um, if you would, we'd like to leave the record open until the close of Business Monday and if questions come in, hopefully you'll answer those fairly promptly. Um, and uh, with that, uh, without further ado, unless you'd like to close with any kind of comments, I see no nods, uh, the meeting is adjourned. Thank you so much.